Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Professor Isam Awad, who is Professor of Neurological Sciences and Surgery, Neurology, Quantitative Biology, and Human Behavior at the University of Chicago. One of his research interests is the natural history and biologic behavior of vascular malformations of the brain. Welcome, Isam. Hello. Yeah, thanks for doing this. So I want to start with a few of your papers. Um, the one from 2019, Comprehensive Transcriptome Analysis of Cerebral Cavernous Malformation, CCM, across multiple species and genotypes. Uh, you say the purpose of the study was to determine important genes, functions, and networks contributing to the pathobiology of CCM from transcriptomic analysis across three species and two disease genotypes. So you're using um, mice and C. elegans here in the study, but before we get into the details of the studies, um, could you talk a bit about what CCM is? How is it presented? What's incidence rate? And what's sort of the standard of care in terms of treatment? Yes, so CCM stands for cerebral cavernous malformation, also known as cavernous angiomas. And it is a fascinating disease because it, is, uh, it manifests itself as brittle blood vessels that are prone to hemorrhage in the brain. And people can either inherit the disease as a result of three different genes, all of them autosomal dominant, or by loss of function due to somatic mutations in the lesion itself. Mm -hmm. So you can either have the familial form of the gene where uh, there is a germline mutation that's inherited in the family, and then lesions form throughout the brain, or a single solitary lesion that develops because of a somatic mutation of those same genes. Mm -hmm. So it happens by chance. So it is a, uh, an interesting disease because we know the gene that can predispose to 
malformed vessel and bleeding in the brain. So we use it as a model disease to try to understand bleeding in the brain and how blood vessels malform and are prone uh, to hemorrhage. So what's the incidence rate? Um, yes, it is a very common disease, actually about uh, uh, <clears throat> half a percent to one percent of the population harbor one of these lesions. Uh, the familial form is much less common, it's about 20 percent of the cases, but the majority of the patients harbor a single solitary sporadic lesion in their brain that just malformed and is prone to bleeding. And so uh, both of these varieties, the, the singular one and the clustered one, both of them are fundamentally genetically related, right? Exactly. So the familial disease uh, uh, basically led us to the genes that can cause this problem. And then we, we found out that the sporadic lesions that occur by chance have somatic mutations of those same genes that are inherited in the familial form. So both diseases form due to, to the loss of function of these three CCM genes, either one copy in the blood and one copy goes bad in the brain, or a somatic mutation of loss of function in the brain. And what's the prognosis? Uh, is it treatable? Yeah, so... so uh, uh, the majority of lesions do not progress and they are found incidentally and they may be asymptomatic. So they are more of a worry for the patient who has them in their head as to whether they can live their life normally uh, or not. Uh, but a fraction of the lesions, up, up to a fifth of them, can develop uh, into a bleeding and expanding phenotype that can cause neurologic sequelae. So that can cause seizures or stroke-like uh, symptoms, uh, etc. So this is another interesting thing about this disease. It's a paradigm of a common disease with unusual, uncommon switches that can make it more aggressive. Mm -hmm. So. Uh, so the majority of the, of the patients have quiescent lesions, but there are a subgroup of lesions that become symptomatic and aggressive. And so the 0.5% to 1% incidence rate, so we don't really know, right? Because if, if, if uh, uh, you know, people could have it and they wouldn't really know, they wouldn't seek treatment. Yeah, so we have ways of knowing because it's very well detected on MRI of the brain and people get MRIs for all kinds of causes. So, you know, one study we did about 25 years ago looked at consecutive MRIs done for all causes. And you find one of these lesions. So the patient may have had all kinds of problems, but they got an MRI of the brain and you find the lesion in about 1% of these consecutive MRIs. The same number comes up when people look for it at autopsies. So autopsy of the brain cutting uh, and uh, uh, the same rate of detection is found. So we're pretty certain that, uh, that it is that common. And so you have done a lot of work in this area, Sam. Uh, so the genetic aspect of this appears to be well categorized. 
So you want to talk a bit about the study? So you're using different models here, mice and sea yeah. elephants along with humans. Yeah, so the theme here is, is what does this disease teach us uh, about, about how we can deconstruct uh, molecular and genetic diseases? So uh, we are able to create lesions in the mice by knocking down these genes. And we also have lesions from human patients that we reject at surgery because the lesion has grown and caused clinical problems. So brain surgery is done and the lesions are resected. And we also can knock the gene down in cells in vitro mm -hmm. and also even in worms. And it's also been done in zebrafish. So we have multiple organisms in which we can cause the loss of CCM genes and then see what happens. So th this is uh, the study that you are referring to uh, actually is, is the first of, of any uh, neurovascular disease where we actually looked at common gene perturbations across species. So if you lost this gene in the dish or in the fish or in the worm or in the mouse or in the human, what are the commonly disrupted uh, uh, secondary pathways and other genes that, that go awry as a result of, of this genotype? So, so basically we're looking at the uh, uh, groups of genes that result in the abnormal lesion even though you have a primary gene loss in the familial disease, but then a whole number, several hundred genes, uh, become abnormal as a result of that loss of function. Yeah, I was wondering, uh, why the worm without a CNS uh, system and a brain? What, what do you see there? The worm is very interesting to us because it's got no circulatory system, so it doesn't have any blood vessels. It has one tube in the center of the worm that acts both as a digestive and circulatory tube. So that tube, as it turns out, becomes very disturbed when you lose CCM genes. So we, we learn in a very fundamental way how a circulatory tube becomes beads and becomes disrupted and therefore can cause bleeding if it were in a blood vessel but of course the, the the worm doesn't have blood vessels so it doesn't bleed but yet we are able to study this uh, this uh, phenotype uh, in a very fundamental way the other thing is uh, you may know or you do know about about the worm is that we know what every cell in the worm does and we have the genome of the worm very well worked out so we can tell what are the equivalent genes in a mammal that are perturbed as a result of this uh, ccm loss so it gives us a very good model system yeah, so, so um, it appears sort of common um, genotype. And so when you compare these different uh, systems, uh, what is the commonality? Uh, what are the things that we are finding? Yes, so the commonality are uh, uh, permeability uh, type genes. So genes that normally would keep cells together so they don't leak those genes become perturbed as a result of the loss of CCM uh, uh, function. Therefore, 
uh, we can start to understand the bleeding in the brain as a permeability disease because of those groups of genes across, uh, across different uh, species. The other uh, very interesting uh, uh, groups of genes that we learned about from this transcriptome are the inflammatory genes. So, so the worm doesn't even have white blood cells uh, to cause inflammation, but it does have uh, immune system genes that are homologous to those of mammals. And those immune system genes are perturbed when you lose CCM function. So we know now that inflammation uh, plays a very important role in this disease, uh, not just because there is bleeding and your brain gets inflamed in reaction, but as a fundamental way of loss of function, there is already an activation of inflammatory pathways uh, that, that uh, result from that. Do you see any connections to other um, neurodegenerative diseases? Um... Yeah, so, so, you know, inflammation is, is, is so commonly implicated in many, many different types of degenerative diseases. But here we are linking it to leaking vessels. So blood vessels that leak uh, uh, are accompanied by an inflammatory phenotype. And, and this, as it turns out, is present in the blood vessels as we age. So, so the aging blood vessels acquire very, very similar phenotype to, to that of, uh, of the cavernous angiomas. Mm -hmm. And so what's the status quo? What's the standard of care? So uh, unless you have a problem, you don't really touch anything, right? Exactly. <laughs> so, so once lesion bleeds, the patient has neurologic symptoms, and we we try to connect the lesion to the neurologic symptoms. And if the patient is having seizures, they might get anticonvulsant medications. If they have headaches, you might treat the symptoms. But if the lesion itself is growing and has caused some leakage of blood in the brain, then we remove the lesion surgically. This is why this started, in fact, as a neurosurgical disease, where patients would come with a stroke and you have the lesion, and the lesion caused the stroke, so we resect the lesion. Uh, uh, but fundamentally, uh, this is a lesion that starts because of leaky blood vessels, and it doesn't have to get to that point. So studying this disease is extremely important because you can keep it at the very simple rudimentary form without letting it become the very advanced form that we deal with surgically. But the treatment, in answer to your question, is very crude. It's resecting the hemorrhagic lesion, which is a very invasive intervention in the human, in the human brain, particularly if the lesion is in the brain stem or thalamus. Uh, it can be a very morbid and, and risky operation, and we have to weigh the benefit versus uh, the risks. So it is very attractive to us to understand how this disease happens and what makes lesions aggressive so we can develop medical therapies as an alternative uh, to, uh, to surgery. And, and there are some signaling pathways that we can uh, manipulate that rescue that phenotype. Yeah, I was really fascinated by your one of your recent papers, uh, Permissive Microbiome Characterizes Human Subjects 
with a neurovascular disease, uh, cavernous uh, angioma, uh, CA, it's the same as CCM you, you mentioned. Yeah, it's, a, it's a different name, but the same disease. So, so the connection to the microbiome, that is, that is really fascinating. So, so what are you finding here? Yeah, so it is very fascinating. And, and we learned about it really by, by fluke, like most scientific discoveries. Uh, we were breeding the mice that would form uh, cavernous angiomas and found out that these mice that lack the gene when they are kept in a very clean vivarium, you know, and, and they had built a new vivarium at the University of Pennsylvania with whom I collaborate, and their mice wouldn't get cavernous angiomas. <laughs> so then we, we took the mice that were resistant to the disease and uh, tried to understand why they were resistant to the disease. And it turned out that their gut was too clean. It didn't have the, <laughs> the, the normal gut flora that normal mice would have. And once these mice were put to vivaria with other dirty mice, their gut microbiome changed and they started forming cavernous angiomas. <laughs> so we ended up doing a series of uh, uh, studies that linked the formation of the lesion uh, to uh, lipopolysaccharides that arise from gram-negative bacteria in the gut. And, and uh, once uh, the mice had the, the, the propensity of gram-negative bacteria, there was enough signaling that attached to the brain endothelial cells to cause the bleeding. Uh, so then the, the study you are mentioning is we actually took the humans with the lesion and normal patients who don't have the lesions. And anybody who has a cavernous angioma, their gut flora are different and they favor lipopolysaccharides. Mm -hmm. So they favor gram-negative bacteria. Therefore, our conclusion from that study is that the only explanation is that it is there is a permissive microbiome that allows you to form the lesion. Without that microbiome, you could have the genetic hit and not form a lesion. You're protected. That is very fascinating. <laughs> That's quite amazing. So the, the gram-negative bacteria, yeah. um, they have uh, benefits, right? Uh, it's not like we can just wipe them out. And, uh, and you okay. wipe them out. If you wipe them out, you'll have another problem. You know? <laughs> so so uh, the key is to actually have a balance, a healthy balance. And once there is a propensity of disorderly microbiome, and we showed in that paper that it's not just the ratio of gram-negative to gram-positive bacteria. That's one of the features. Mm. But the whole ecology of the gut is changed in that favor. Uh, and that ends up uh, causing more lipopolysaccharides to be in the circulation and, and therefore exposing uh, the, uh, the uh, diseased blood vessels to that signaling and therefore allow the diseased blood vessels to progress. Without so, the diseased blood vessels just do not form the lesion. So you could have the gene loss, but without lipopolysaccharide activating signal, the lesions would not form. Um, could we conclude causation there, or are we just finding sort of correlation? So, so in the human, uh, you know, the human studies, you cannot do the knockouts of various human species. <laughs> but we did this in the mice. 
So we, we are very certain it is it is causation in the mice because uh, the, the the brain uh, microvascular endothelial cell has a TLR4 uh, signaling receptor uh, to which the lipopolysaccharides can activate it. So when we bred mice lacking this that that particular signaling receptor, they also wouldn't form lesions. Right. So right. The, you could lose their CCM function altogether, but they wouldn't form lesions because they don't have that driver. Mm-hmm. So there is a definite mechanistic link that we showed in the in the mice. But the, the beauty here is that we took it to the humans, and lo and behold, the, the humans who have the lesion, whether it is familial or sporadic, all share that permissive microbiome that you and I do not have. Yeah, so so with human data now, are we getting closer to some sort of therapeutic intervention that you could design? So it's not as easy as you might think because you can't just wipe out the gram-negative bacteria. So we have to we have to look at uh, the resistant microbiome, not just the permissive one, and try to see if what are the types of diets or other interventions that can alter. Uh, the microbiome in that favor. So, uh, so uh, the the resistant microbiome tends to have a little bit more gram-positive bacteria. But again, you can't let those take over completely. So, so uh, th- that function, that that particular uh, intervention is very interesting. We did find that there is um, uh, uh, one dietary supplement. That uh, that if you if we fed the mice, they actually changed their microbiome to a permissive one, and and uh, the, uh, these are the molecules that are used as preservatives to prolong shelf life of food. So they alter the gut microbiome in such a way that it is more like the permissive microbiome. So that's one start that maybe dietary alterations will help us. So, uh, permissive meaning they actually aid uh, the formation of CCM? Yes. So, basically, you can have that gut microbiome, but if you don't have the CCM gene disturbance, you're not going to form a lesion. But conversely, you can have the CCM gene disturbance, and you wouldn't form a lesion if the gut didn't help you. That's why it's called permissive. So, there must be other diseases uh, that like that. Any discovery in medicine of something this weird has to be more broad. So there have to be other diseases that that would form, but then are aided and abetted by uh, by uh, conditions in the gut. Yes, many of the conversations I have had is, um, in different therapeutic areas, you know, they, they come down to the microbiome and uh, some connection to processed food. Uh, and, you know, that's what uh, most of our, our dietary habits are uh, based on. So, so it seems like that is sort of a central part of the story, right? It is. Uh, it's because, I mean, we learned about it. We're not microbiome scientists, so we, learned, we, got, we fell into the story. And what we were told by the microbiome experts is that if you want to test whether whether increased gut permeability and and uh, uh, is part of this disease, why don't you feed your mice uh, uh, added uh, 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 products like that in their diet? And sure enough, that actually 
uh, increase the bleeding in the brain. It's sort of an optimization problem, right? You have to be able to get to that, the whole microbiome or the, or the different uh, species in there to some sort of an optimum ratio. Exactly. I mean, it's no different than any other endocrine or exocrine function, right? You have thyroid. If it's too high, it's bad. If it's too low, it's bad. But the right amount seems to make the cells work just right. Same with vitamin levels, etc. But we just didn't know about this big factor that we all live with about two pounds of bacteria in our gut. And we don't know what that what that organ system, if you would, how it affects the body. And, and lo and behold, this is a disease. You would have never thought of that if it weren't for these UPenn mice that, that didn't get the lesions. Yeah, really fascinating. You, you're also working on sort of on the diagnostic area. So you've had another paper, uh, common transcriptome plasma molecules and imaging signatures in the aging brain and the mentalian neurovascular disease, cerebral uh, cavernous malformation. Um, so this is uh, sort of um, looking for some, um, some signals from a diagnostic perspective. Yes, so this basically leads us into another area that my lab is extremely interested in. And let me take just a moment to kind of uh, talk about the importance of that almost any diseased organ or any pathology that we have anywhere in our body uh, is either caused by or it leaks certain signals in the circulating blood. So either you have a pro-inflammatory state that drives it or an anti-inflammatory state that inhibits it, or there are abnormalities in the lesion that leak certain molecules in the blood. And of course, the blood is, is made up of, of all kinds of molecules. We, have, we know about proteins, there are also metabolites, and there are fragments of nucleic acids, microRNAs, cell-free DNAs that are floating out there that reflect pathologies. So you would think that it is impossible to detect a signal from these small pathologies in the blood because you, you wouldn't know what to look for. But if you're smart about the transcriptome of the lesion, meaning the group of genes disrupted in the lesion, then you can start to look in an informed way mm -hmm. for those signals in the, in the blood. Mm -hmm. So uh, in cavernous angiomas, the inflammatory and uh, the uh, permeability uh, uh, genes in the transcriptome led us to look at certain molecules that are pro-inflammatory in the, in the plasma of the blood and also molecules that cause vascular leak like VEGF and Robo4 and so forth. These are molecules that uh, that cause abnormal angiogenesis and vascular integrity. And when we assay the blood of patients, we find that those molecules are prevalent in cavernous angioma patients. Mm -hmm. So they become biomarkers of the disease. And furthermore, they become more present if you have more lesions or more aggressive 
So they become biomarkers of the disease. So in the paper you are talking about, uh, we were interested in the aging brain because the aging brain is also prone to bleeding. You know, as we get older, we're prone to have hemorrhagic strokes because of, of little brittle blood vessels. And that bleeding in the aging brain appears to be mediated by very similar groups of genes as the cavernous angiomas. Mm -hmm. So this cavernous angioma, this weird genetic disease, turns out to tell us a lot about how blood vessels weaken as we age. So we found very common groups of disrupted genes in the aging human brain as in the cavernous malformation transcriptome. Mm -hmm. And then we looked for the biomarkers in the blood of older people, and lo and behold, in that paper, we show that it has the same plasma signatures as cavernous angioma patients. So as you get older, the same molecules start becoming more prevalent in our bloodstream as in cavernous angioma patients. So, so I don't know much about this, Islam, but is it is it the right way to think about uh, is CCM is sort of modulating how fast the brain is aging? Well, it is not how fast. It is a gross uh, and overt uh, lesion that is the end stage, perhaps, of 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 a normal blood vessel aging. So as a normal blood vessel ages, it, it, it gets a little bit weaker, a little bit leaky, but obviously if it does what cavernous angioma does, you have a stroke, you know, so that's the end stage of it. So the, the, the progression of cavernous angioma-like genes in the aging brain may be the stage prior to this gross failure of the neurovascular unit and overt bleeding. Yeah, other than any, uh, did you find anything else, any other factor that that, that sort of um, accelerates this process in the brain? Yeah, I mean, this is well known that uh, you can have uh, the genetics that cause amyloid angiopathy, which is an accumulation of a protein similar to that of Alzheimer's disease, but if you have it in the blood vessel wall, the amyloid protein, you have amyloid angiopathy, which is leaky also and causes bleeds in the brain. So that is another uh, molecular disturbance that causes the same phenotype. Also high blood pressure, excessive salt intake uh, can mimic uh, that phenotype in a slower way. Uh, diabetes, the diabetic blood vessel can also have that similar. So that may explain why uh, these different risk factors cause us to bleed more in the brain as we get older, because they all feed into that, uh, that, uh, uh, that same phenotype that is so grossly abnormal in the cavernous angioma. So the cavernous angioma is a model of one gene causing it to blow out, but otherwise, as we age, similar processes contribute to it. Yeah, the, the people say two, two things, sugar and salt, uh, are responsible for 75% of our healthcare costs. <laughs> uh, you, you don't typically think about that in the CNS uh, area, um, but uh, it seems like these two things are everywhere, right? Causing problems. So in fact, you know, the the the... 
blood vessel diseases of the brain as we get older, uh, uh, which result from hypertension, smoking, diabetes, etc., uh, all contribute uh, to uh, both ischemic and hemorrhagic stroke burden. So that uh, as, as we get older, our brain becomes more vulnerable to bleeds and to ischemia because of these same diseases. Uh, and, and in many ways, it contributes to dementia. So the patients who have Alzheimer's, if they were smokers or hypertensive, their Alzheimer's is worse. And, uh, uh, you know, of course, the famous work is uh, Costantino Iadicola at, uh, at Cornell, who has looked at Alzheimer's disease and how it is made worse by, uh, uh, by salt and blood pressure and so forth. Yeah. And so I know that you're working on, uh, you call it the smart blood test. Um, and so we talked a little bit about that. So is it uh, closer to being uh, practical? Yeah, so for cavernous angiomas, it's very close because we've been working on that disease for a while now. And we, we have followed a number of molecules in the blood that when they are combined together, they can predict whether cavernous angioma will bleed or will not bleed. So this uh, combi combination of various molecules is the heart of the concept of the smart blood tests. So basically, you have many signals in the blood that are associated with this, but alone you cannot use them for the diagnostic tests. They're just P less than 0.05, but that doesn't buy you anything, you know? <laughs> but if you can take five molecules that are just P less than 0.05 and combine them in the right way, one of them maybe more weight, less weight, etc. you can come up with a, a combined molecular test that has four or five molecules that actually predict the clinical event very, very strongly. So this uh, uses uh, Bayesian statistics, uh, which depend on little hunches, and then you integrate the hunches and you get with the predictor. So the, uh, we have a lot of interest in my lab in integrating these statistical methods using machine learning to try to take maybe 10, 12 molecules and then say which four of them in what combination can be a better test than all 20 or all 10, you know. So that's how we proceed with that. And that's going to be applicable to many, many other diseases. So yeah, you yeah. could have a cancer, you could have a heart attack, etc. And we know already of many molecules that are associated with that. But then we have never thought of combining these molecules in a specific weighted combination to answer a clinical question. Yeah, I mean, uh, I know that you're doing a lot of work in this area too. So machine learning approaches, um, uh, you know, there's a lot of development in that area. We're getting faster computers, more powerful machines. And so as more and more data uh, is collected in this area, uh, it, it appears that it's very amenable to machine learning type techniques, right? Yes, so basically uh, computational biology in general with machine learning, Bayesian statistics, etc., allow us now to take problems that were out of reach 
uh, in the classical days when we were assaying five proteins and whatever, but now we can take and test uh, during uh, maybe four or six hours, uh, you know, a million different combinations of these proteins and then test each one in relation to uh, did your lesion bleed or not. So we can take uh, the blood of a patient and then follow them for a year and see if their lesion bled or was quiescent. So that's a single very black or white question, okay? But then there are million things in their blood that are different between those two people. And then we try to find using machine learning and these statistical approaches, uh, a finite number of signals that predict that difference in phenotype. So that's the smart blood. Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of attributes uh, that you can pick up from the blood, and it's also the relationships between those attributes that appear to be quite quite important. Ratios them are yeah. co-correlated. So you know, if you have, let's take your uh, atherosclerosis and blood sugar and so forth. So you have high cholesterol and high blood sugar and high salt intake. They all go in the same direction. They're not independent predictors. They're very co-correlated. Yes. But then uh, there may be other signals like C-reactive protein, which is the inflammatory response to atherosclerosis, that now brings in a complementary signal. Or there could be the leaky molecule signal, which is VEGF or robo. So if you took two or three of those that are bringing in complementary signals, you now have a much more powerful test. Yeah, going back to the gut biome uh, Instead of testing your sugar and cholesterol and whatever, you're doing it all at the same time and bringing all the different signals together. And you, you go home from your doctor's office with one combination of, of, of risks. That's what we're trying to do. Yeah, it's really fascinating. I just want to go back to the, the gut biome discussion. Sir, do you see anything sort of a, a, a blood test in the future that short, sort of tells us if the gut biome is in balance yeah. or in some so way? So we did that. So we, we actually looked as to whether uh, any uh, molecules in the blood reflect the uh, uh, permissive microbiome in our disease because that would be a lot easier to, to find out whether you are vulnerable to the disease or not. Uh, and if you change your diet, are you changing it enough? Because you know how the microbiome is analyzed. You take the feces, you have to look at all the bacteria and, and sequence their genes and then do this, this kind of analysis of what are the genes of all your fecal bacteria. That's not a practical test, you know? So, I, I, you know, you have to spend several hundred thousand dollars to do it in a hundred patients, you know? So that's not a practical test. But if we have a, molecules in, a molecule in the blood that reflects it, uh, that would be very good. So, in fact, there is uh, a, a protein that binds uh, lipopolysaccharide. It's called lipopolysaccharide binding protein. And we found that that protein is actually decreased in people who have the permissive microbiome. Mm -hmm. So that's one test in the blood that can tell you how your microbiome is. But there are also other 
metabolites that are uh, different in the blood. So you are absolutely right. There will be blood tests that reflect your bad or good microbiome for various diseases. Yeah, so I want to finish up with, um, with, um, with a discussion on education. Um, so you, you seem to be doing two different things, uh, doing some science, um, really kind of emerging science, but you're also a neurosurgeon, so you're also practicing uh, physician. Um, is this is this sort of the future that uh, most uh, physicians in the future might uh, might do some real science as well? Actually, it's not. Uh, <laughs> our field emerged with leaders in surgery who, who were also scientists, uh, and some of the foundations of our field were people who were operating on the human brain and also studying how the brain gets organized. Uh, and and uh, or my generation, how the molecular diseases of neurosurgical problems are. However, the average neurosurgeon cannot do that. The average neurosurgeon has to worry about their technical proficiency every day and handling a broad range of neurosurgical diseases with competence, technical competency. So it's it's the difference between the pilots and the aerospace engineers, right, or, or the astronauts. They all dabble with flight, but their roles are very different. You know, the pilot every day that flies you has to be very competent on that plane and do it over and over and over again. So as a neurosurgeon, I have to do that too. But, but if I want to crack the secrets of some of our diseases, I have to take time and, and do a parallel uh, of building the type of laboratory I've been telling you about that tries to take the disease from the from the human and saying, how can we alter it? What are its signals? And if we do, do that, we'll never know that the microbiome drives bleeding in the brain, you know? So the, the guys who study microbiome alone would have never discovered it. And the neurosurgeons would have never discovered it. So you need these key individuals that devote they that have one foot in each camp. They're like the translators in the ancient world. They're the <laughs> ones who would bring the ideas of Aristotle to 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 Rome, you know. And and therefore you need to have translation. And and this is uh, we take this very seriously. So we have to teach a cadre, a small group of of elite neurosurgeons, to give up some part of neurosurgery. So they don't have to do disc disease and, and trauma and whatever. But if they're doing brain tumors, they also need to study the science of brain tumors. Or if they're doing neurovascular disease, they need to do the science. So it's not for everybody, but it is for a, a key cadre of, uh, of neurosurgeons that give them this opportunity to develop as neurosurgeon scientists because it is so critical to have those few people in our midst to try to crack the mysteries uh, of, of the diseases. Yeah, so I spent some time in the pharma industry, so I mean, I always felt that there isn't sufficient feedback uh, between, you know, sort of the providers and the pharmaceutical scientists uh, as they were developing new products, right? Uh, so there's a lot of data in the provider arena, but that never actually gets into 
the manufacturer's uh, R&D uh, process. And it's sort of an analogous thing, right? Um, which Absolutely. Is, uh, so so you, you've heard of the imposter syndrome, right? So, so whenever we are in a clique thinking the same way, anyone who comes in using slightly different tools of, or approaches is treated as an imposter. You know, they are not as good as we are at what we do, and they're bringing these strange ideas. So our na na nature is to lock them out, you know? But, but you're right, the creativity comes by allowing a few imposters in the different cultures, because that's how you get something very creative and very, uh, very new. So we like to encourage uh, uh, the people who are doing technic highly technical neurosurgery to also take a year or two to study some form of scholarship or science to bring a different different way of investigating and thinking about the clinical uh, problem that we have. And this is how we're going to conquer some of it. I mean, how, how are we going to talk to the pharmacologists about what is a better approach to testing this disease if you don't, you're not sitting with them and talking with them and allowed to do that? Yeah, from an education perspective, it appears to be a real challenge, right? Specialization, um, the information that you have to really uh, understand if you want to specialize in something is so much and so dynamic. Uh, a specialist is, is really impossible for a specialist to broaden and look at the look at the intersection of disciplines for example right so all all our scientific and clinical disciplines have become subspecialized so you have to shed a little bit some of the generalist interest it's good to have that i mean you know it's good to have that but but you cannot do everything so you have at some point to say and again i go back in neurosurgery and i say at one point in my career, I did epilepsy and tumors and discs, but I can't be thinking about all these problems. I can maybe master the technique of all of them, but if I want to think in depth about one of those fields, I have to let go a little bit and declare a science and an interest in, in one area and go deeper in it. And then I have an educational job to teach the other neurosurgeons what I have learned. So when I sit with neurosurgeons in general, they may get ideas about this disease that have to do with the microbiome that they never thought about before. Right. Yeah, excellent. I mean, this is such a great area. Um, you're, you're doing all aspects of CCM, diagnostics, uh, non-invasive um, interventions perhaps in the future. And then uh, uh, in the context of microbiome makes it Really, really fascinating. Weird focused disease, right? I mean, did you ever think you'd meet a guy that just studies this particular problem? So, so this is the, the idea: is to take a problem that is small, therefore you can wrap your hands around it, and all kinds of leads will will arise from that exercise, and those leads are relevant to medicine in general. So, so I think a lot of the stuff we're developing in cavernous angiomas or cavernous malformations are principles that are applicable in medicine in general. Excellent. Yeah, this has been great, Hassan. Thanks so much for spending time with me.
thank you. It's great to let, let me open up and talk about these bridges between these different ideas. Uh, thank you, it's great, you. great to be with you. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com.